Welcome to Tell Me More Live, the recorded version of our live storytelling night at the Push Comedy Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. In this recording, the Virginian Pilots music critic and author of an upcoming memoir, Rashad Allison, shares a piece of his soul serenade. Well, tonight is about hope. And when I moved here from Baltimore, it's about almost six years ago now, um, there was no hope for me. I didn't think, I didn't have much hope. I moved here, the great, great job at the pilot, great colleagues and everything, um, living here, coming from the city to the suburbs. I'm like, what the fuck, really? So it, it, was, it was hard. But in, in the first month here, though, I um, did something I hadn't done in my adult life, which was fall in love. Met a guy and fell in love and fell into a hole, a metaphorical hole. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah. And that's what that was. It didn't work out. It was, um, it, it stirred, it, it started depression. It was a deep depression because it, um, it stirred some unresolved abandonment issues I had and, um, was waking up crying and shit. And, you know, I was, at, I looked in the mirror one, one morning and I just didn't like what I saw. I was really fat. So almost 280 pounds, it was a 48 waist. And so I said, well, first of all, we need to shave some of this bacon off my ass. And then number two, we need to deal with some of these abandonment issues that break up stirred. And so we need to do that. And then um, I was having a good time working with wonderful editors at the pilot, but I've been doing the music criticism and feature writing thing for a long time. And my degree is in creative writing, actually, creative writing journalism. And I thought, well, let's challenge ourselves in another way. And, and it was a three-pronged uh, program, Operation Reinvent Rashad. Okay, shave the bacon off the ass. So we hired a um, fitness trainer and joined a gym. We... Uh, hired a therapist to unpack some of the emotional issues, and we started writing what became this book, Soul Serenade Out, Beacon Press, Random House, uh, January 26th. And so, <laughs> and all of this was in the connector because I had to be in decent physical shape to go to therapy, and any of y'all have been to therapy knows it gets worse before it gets better. So the emotional and psychological upheaval and unpacking could take a physical toll on you. So, you know, I was working and out of the gym, working with a trainer, losing weight, and then writing this book. And I thought the idea for the book had come to me years ago, but I, I thought that I would appropriate parts of my childhood and growing up in central Arkansas for a novel, but it ended up being a memoir written like a novel. So as I was telling, telling a good friend and colleague earlier, it was a matter of, of connecting memories and editing memories so that story would be cohesive. But in the process of doing that, I'm um, writing about people in my life who had hurt me and people I loved and still love, but, you know, there was a lot of pain there. And writing about it, I didn't filter the story through a sentimental lens, so there was a distance. So I was able to see these people as people, not just mama and daddy and sister and grandma. You know, I saw these people as who they were, you know, flawed folks who the only way they knew to love me was to keep me alive. And in and, and dealing with the, some of the pain as growing up, I re, would retreat into music, which was introduced to me by my father. Um, we used to go to the record shops, and he would buy me records he thought I should have. And uh, they were all these old, soul record staple singers, Johnny Taylor, stuff that I had no business listening to at age five and six. But, you know, uh, Millie Jackson, all this very adult music. When my parents divorced when I was six, and... 
Uh, my father left the family for good. He left these records behind. And so I missed him a lot. And I thought to look for the man he was through the music. And I ended up finding myself in the music. And it was around the fourth grade where it started to make sense, where I didn't realize then what I was doing, but I was looking to find who I wanted to be in the music, which I think is the way that we usually look at art, you know, um, who we want to be. You know, of course, as a, a point of escape, but I think as a young person, especially when you're in a place where you feel traumatized or you feel bullied or you don't know who you are, you're looking to shape an identity through this music. So music art has that power to do that. And so I was going to read a part. This is the first public reading of the book. Um, where in the fourth grade, I started to do that with music. And that was around the time I was being bullied um, at school. And in this part, I um, come home and looking for comfort or looking for some sort of, hey, it'll be all right from my family. And at this point, it was just me, my mother, and my two sisters. My older sister, who's a teenager, and my younger sister, who's just a year and five days younger than me. So... Um, I'm just going to read this part. In the summer of 1986, we left the projects. Mama held down two jobs at the main hospitals in Hot Springs. By day, she delivered food trays to patients at one, and she worked by night as a monitor technician at the other. We moved into a quaint ivory house on Baker Street, just off Grand, the main drag. The porch was wide and screened in. The living room had a brick fireplace. French doors led to a dining room with large windows and sunlight flooded the space. Pushed past the swing door and the kitchen was bright with the window over the sink and several in the breakfast nook. There were three spacious bedrooms. Reagan and I bunked again. Just behind the house was a tiny two-room maid's quarters attached to the garage with the toilet that didn't work. Reagan and I converted it into a playhouse where we entertained ourselves with Monopoly and other games until we inevitably got on each other's nerves and started fighting. Decades before, well-to-do white folks filled the neighborhood. The colonial and Victorian-style homes were still nice and stately by the time we moved in. Our neighbors, whom we never knew, were mostly retired, standoffish, and white. The block had an antiseptic feel and looked like the set of a TV sitcom. No funk, no badass kids running up and down the street. No projects, divas, strolling around in tube tops and denim cutoffs or screaming out of windows and doors. I was relieved. Deuce still worked at Taco Bell, and her commute by bus to Hot Springs High School was shorter. Reagan and I transferred to Jones Elementary, which was about three short blocks away, and we walked to school. It also was around this time I wanted to exit my cocoon and interact with other kids, but nothing changed at Jones. Aside from multiplication tables, I learned a new word, faggot. On the playground one day, I found the nerve to approach a group of four black boys. What y'all doing, I asked. They looked at one another and laughed. The tall one, whom I recognized from the class across the hall from mine, glared at me. Listen at you. What y'all doing, he said in a voice pitched a few octaves higher as he batted his eyes and put his hand on his hip. I don't talk like that, I shot back. Yeah, you do, said the tall motherfucker. Another guy, scowling, spat his words. You act like a faggot. The boys all laughed and walked off. One shouted back, stay away. I stood there, my face flushed, and a cyclone whirling inside my stomach. Later that evening, I went into Deuce's room where she lay across the bed doing her homework. She looked up. What you want? Get out. What's a faggot? Uh-uh. 
What? Well, you hear that at school. These boys call me a faggot. Well, that's what you get. I didn't do nothing. Dusty, I've been telling your ass for the longest. Boys who act like girls, that's a faggot. Got it? I was confused and tried to hold back the tears but was unsuccessful. Deuce wrote her eyes. Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about. You so need to get that together, Dusty. Get out. I didn't do nothing. Get out. I turned around. Maybe she was right. I needed to find an edge from somewhere, but I wasn't tipping out of my cocoon for it. Dusa told mom about the faggot incident, and she called me into her room a few nights after Dusa kicked me out of hers. Mama didn't look at me as she clipped foam rollers into her hair. Yeah. You having problems at school? No. You lying? No. Why Dusa tell me boys are calling you a faggot then? I looked at the floor and didn't answer. Huh? I mumbled. I don't know. Yeah, you know. Mama's tone was accusatory. I said nothing, and the tension pulsed for several seconds. Dusty, I'm talking to you. Don't cry, I told myself. I concentrated on the hardwood floor. Maybe if I looked at it long enough, hard enough, I would melt into it or magically crumble like unbleached flour, leave it a mess that somebody else, maybe Dusa, would have to clean up. Or maybe I could just close my eyes and escape somewhere with Michael Jackson. I could dust it, Mama's voice blared. Look at me. She put the comb down and turned toward me, half of her hair wrapped in tiny tissue paper and pink foam rollers. When you were born, the doctors brought me you and said, you have a boy. I didn't have a girl. I want you to start acting like a boy. You hear me? All I knew was something, a defect that Mama, Deuce, and those nappy-headed boys on the playground could clearly see made me feel lonely and deeply disliked. Tears streamed. What did I do? Mama rolled her eyes. Oh, Shit, you go around here acting like a woman. Ray can act more like a boy than you. You want to be a girl? The floor blurred through the tears. Dusty, huh? I said you want to be a girl? No. Then start acting like a boy, and folks at school won't be calling you no faggot. You ain't no faggot. You hear me? Liquid fire stirred in my chest and coursed through my body. Dusty, I wanted to be invisible. Dusty, mama's trumpet sputtered sharp, ragged notes that spiraled round and round inside my head. Maybe she carried the moon in her pocketbook and lion slept in her backyard because her voice suggested a strength and calmness of another worldly queen. There was a liberating fuck you in every primal wail on a Shaka Khan record, and I started to gather my strength from there. I saw her on solid gold and soul train. She was a few years past her artistic prime in the mid-80s, her voice clashing against trendy synthesizers, her massive purplish hair obscuring her face. I found a younger Shaka in the records daddy left, the shapely chick with the mysterious eyes in leather and feathers, sitting gap-legged on a couch shaped like a pair of big red lips. I watched, as I always did, the label spinning on the turntable. The sun-yellow outer rings with the red and violet core worked like a hypnotic spiral as Shaka's brassy voice pulled me into a fool's paradise. I had no idea what she sang about. I didn't absorb lyrics then. The voice was all that mattered, and I wanted to be the sound, free and powerful, bold and assured. This was not the sound of a faggot. This was not the sound of a lonely and disliked person. Now that I had headphones, I could plug in and blast her defiant voice. I could close my eyes and become nothing. I could exhale and surrender to a woman who tamed lions in her backyard and kept a full moon somewhere in her purse. So nearly 20 years later, I meet Shaka Khan. 
um, when I was working as the music critic at the Baltimore Sun at the Peninsula Hotel. And we, I'm the professional, although I was about to freak out because she comes down and she has all this hair and she got an entourage and she sits across from me and we're just talking and she's talking to that fake-ass British accent she uses sometimes. And so <laughs> when I addressed her by her given name, which is Yvette, I'm like, Yvette from Southside Chicago, and she laughs. And so then she, you know, becomes real. And the interview was wonderful, and this was, it was pegged to a, her memoir that she had written, and I had the book, and she signs it, and I was wearing a ring at the time, a horseshoe ring, and she compliments it, and she's like, oh, you're so nice, I like your bald head, and I'm like, a shock could come flirt with me, but, you know, it was cool. <laughs> but at the end of the interview, you know, I felt, you know, I was like, this is one of those moments as a music critic where it's, you're meeting these people whose music, in a way, saved your life. And so, you know, I thought, well, this is probably the only... Now, I've interviewed Shock about two other times after that, but at that time, face-to-face, sitting next across from her, watching her do this to her hair and all that stuff, I said, well, this is probably the only time I'm going to get to tell her thank you. So without going into any of the details, I told her, listen, you've had Shaka, and she's laughing. I said, you know, there was a time in my life where, and I'm sure you hear this from all your fans, and I'm sure all your gay fans always like, oh, Shaka, but no, for real, though, your voice was something that it gave me strength at a time when I was looking for it. And she said, oh, oh yeah. well, thank you, thank you, you know. And I said, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That was Rashad Allison sharing himself and his book, Soul Serenade, which debuts January 2016. Thanks, Rashad, for sharing your story. I'm Deb Markham executive producer of Tell Me More Live. If you'd like to join the show or help out in any way, visit tellmemorelive.org. That's tellmemorelive.org. We'll find a list of upcoming shows, submission and contact forms, and of course, more Storyteller podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to Tell Me More Live.